Video. You know you need it. You know it's all but expected from Gen Z at this point. But you've got no time and little budget, and your Marcom department is two months late on those new program brochures they promised. So asking them to help with a video? Forget it. But what if video could be as simple as sending an email to a prospective student? Meet GoodKind, a video engagement platform designed to make each one of your prospects feel like they're getting the extra special treatment. As an enrollment manager, you're competing for attention. And in a sea full of static, boring HTML emails from other schools, a personal video is how you stand out and drive action. With GoodKind, you can bring your university, faculty, and students to life by designing an engaging, hyper-personalized, and video-first communications journey. Increase applications, increase yield, and decrease melt with the power of GoodKind. Visit wearegoodkind.com forward slash enrollify to book a demo and see just how powerful video marketing can be. Show your face, show you care, see the difference connection makes at wearegoodkind.com forward slash enrollify. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. It's good to be back and I'm excited for today's episode which is sort of a follow-up to last week's episode. So last week, for those of you who have not listened to our 100th episode, I got put in the hot seat by Nat and Natalie Gleason, uh, aka Nat, is the Director of Marketing Strategy over here at Enrollify and so she put me in the hot seat and asked me a bunch of questions about my life and how I think and various lessons learned after 100 podcast interviews with you know some of the best minds in higher ed. And for this week's episode, what I wanted to do is, you know, that that conversation was a long hour long conversation. And you know, really off the cuff, I, I hadn't uh, had a chance to really look at Nat's questions before uh, she asked them. So I was uh, wonderfully un, uh, underprepared. But I think that it made for a good episode. At least several of you have reached out to thank me for it. So uh, appreciate all the kind words. But what I wanted to do is actually distill some of these ideas into 10 really specific marketing lessons that I've learned after interviewing, again, over 100 leaders in and around the higher education space. So that's the goal for today's episode is to keep it punchy, keep it short, relatively short and relatively sweet and dive into these lessons that I've learned um, over the past 18 months. Now, uh, before I dive into this solo pod, I do want to just quickly ask if you could just take a moment to follow us on Spotify, to review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help increase uh, our reach uh, in and around the community. So if you like what we are doing here at Enrollify, if you have found value in at least you know a couple of our podcasts or a couple of our blogs, whatever it might be, it would mean the world to me if you could write us a really, really quick review on Apple Podcasts, give us that rating, uh, follow us on Spotify, subscribe you know wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, I know that lots of hosts ask for this kind of stuff, and it's, you're probably tired of it by now. So, you know, I don't I don't like to ask for it too often, but um, we've got some exciting things in store and would love for as many new folks to join the growing uh, Enrollify community as possible. All right, without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode. So 
just to make sure that we're all on the same page here, over the last 18 months since we launched the Enrollify podcast, I've interviewed more than 100 different leaders in enrollment marketing. These have been folks who have been, you know, VPs of enrollment management to directors of marketing uh, from college presidents to famous SEOs like Rand Fishkin, from CEOs of great ed tech companies to brand experts at education marketing agencies and really like everybody in between. So uh, it's somewhat hard to kind of recap like learnings after that many conversations. But what I've tried to do is sort of distill some of my favorite conversations, specifically the ones that challenged me to think a little bit differently about marketing and channel these uh, learnings into kind of like 10 tactical, specific takeaways that I hope will at least be interesting to you, if not uh, motivating to you. And maybe it'll inspire you to think a little bit differently about how you approach recruitment at your school or how you approach marketing at your ed tech company uh, or how you talk to clients if you're working in the education marketing consultancy space. So here we go. Number one. Stop asking broad questions and expecting meaningful insight. So in preparation for uh, this 100th episode and this blog post that I wrote and now this podcast interview, I actually went back and listened to some of the first interviews I ever did. And it was uh, it was cringeworthy, guys. I mean, I was I was I was crawling in my skin listening to those initial episodes. And, you know, for one, the quality wasn't fantastic, but overlooking the quality, just the content, the way that I asked questions, uh, it was it was it was just a nightmare. Um, and, you know, to, to be fair, I had never done a podcast before. I was really, really just uh, starting out. But I think what was hardest about the, you know, those early episodes was that I just didn't know I was imitating, right? Like, I didn't, I didn't know what kind of questions to ask guests. I didn't know how to sort of like draw people out. I, I was, you know, from the start interviewing people that were much more experienced in me than the field in, you know, much more experienced than me in the field, who had, you know, thought a lot about marketing, who were working, who had been working right in admissions, uh, or had been working for college and universities in a vendor capacity for decades, like literally decades. And here I was this, you know, young guy with not a lot of experience trying to kind of like pull out these these insights and, and um, share these insights via our, our budding platform. And I would ask questions like, you know, what do you do or how do you approach enrollment marketing strategy or what advice do you have for our listeners? And I, mean, I guess you could argue that these aren't, you know, terrible questions, but like they're questions that everyone else asks, right? And when it comes to podcast uh, interviews, when it comes to really like any content today, there's just so much content out there that you have to differentiate, right? And one of, I think, like the best ways to differentiate is actually to think very critically about like the questions that you're asking your guests, right? Really good, really specific, different questions solicit different answers, right? They solicit like unique insight. And that just makes a better, it makes for, for a better conversation. It also just makes, you know, for better content later, especially for those listening in on the conversation, right? It's something that they, in theory, like haven't heard a lot before. So, um, and as I was thinking about this from a marketing standpoint, like outside of podcasting, right? Anytime you are interviewing students or interviewing a faculty member or you're, you know, working on some sort of, whether it's a, a PR piece or a branding campaign, or even if you're trying to like revamp your, your comm flows, right? There, you, you want to feature the student voice, right? Everyone knows that that's really, really, really important, but oftentimes, right? 
uh, enrollment marketers get stuck in like asking very basic general insight, like why did you come to campus, or you know what what was your first thought of you know when you walked on campus, or why did you come to this university, or what program are you majoring in, right? Um, and I, I think that the the problem with those sorts of really broad questions is you're you're kind of going to get like a cut and dry answer. Um, so I think that there is an art to asking good questions. And I think as marketers, our job is actually, right? If we want to if we want to showcase our UVPs, if we want to make sure that our positioning and messaging is actually different than the university down the street, if, we, if we're, you know, again, working in the education consultancy space and we're trying to help our clients come up with really good UVPs, what we have to do, what we have to really, really remember here is that you're not going to get anything meaningful, right, or anything different by asking the same question that everybody else asks or by asking questions that are incredibly uh, expected. So what do you do instead? Here's a few you know, better questions that I've asked guests on some of our recent podcasts. And again, this is podcast specific, but translate this into any sort of like um, any sort of channel, any sort of uh, uh, context. And I think that the same basic principles apply, right? So here are a couple of, be- uh, of better questions. Number one, what's something that's not on your LinkedIn profile that you're especially proud of accomplishing over the course of your career? What I like about this question, right, is that oftentimes, right, when you're throwing stuff on LinkedIn, you're throwing like jobs that you've had, right, at companies that you've been a part of. And, you know, that's interesting, that's that's helpful. But oftentimes, like that doesn't, you know, do a great job at spelling out like a specific project or a specific initiative you worked at during your tenure at that uh, at that organization. And, you know, you're not posting, uh, I worked on this really cool brand project, this really cool brand campaign that took sort of like a, you know, D3 school and made them like a household name or something like that, right? Like, I, I, I like the idea of being of this question, because it can, it can draw out some specific sort of like vignettes um, in somebody's life that uh, in somebody's professional sort of like post that were especially interesting or impactful. So that's question number one. Number two, uh, can you walk us through an oh shit moment, right? A time when you really thought, this idea that you had might go nowhere, that it might crash and burn. What was happening and how did you end up championing through that doubt, right? I love that question because we've all had these oh shit moments, right? We've all had moments where, uh, whether it's you know in our career, whether it's a project, whether it's a company we wanted to start, whatever, where you know we just, we hit a low point. And so I love hearing about how people sort of like conjure up the courage and the strength to like get themselves out of that negative headspace. Um, and this just uh, oftentimes produces some of my favorite uh, content. Some of the like the most interesting sort of like takeaways in interviews is, um, from my perspective, answers to this particular question. And then last but certainly not least here, right? If I were to be invited to your household for a family dinner, and if I were to ask your close family and friends to describe you with three adjectives, what do you think they would say and why? I love this too because, again, it, it helps the individual kind of talk about themselves a little bit but through sort of like the lens of somebody else, right, somebody that they're close to. So anyhow, um, for what it's worth, I think that these questions and questions like these should serve as sort of like an inspiration the next time you're going to uh, interview a prospective student or a faculty member for a PR piece, for a branding campaign, or again, even to just like grab sort of a new kind of quote that you can use in your conflows. So that's lesson number one. Stop asking broad questions and expecting meaningful insight. Number two, 
Copywriting is the most accessible, affordable, and underrated of marketing tactics. So I haven't met a single higher ed marketer or admissions professional who has ever told me that they have more resources than they know what to do with. In fact, just about all of you, right? When you come to me, you talk to me on LinkedIn, whatever it is, like you are, you say the opposite. You say, I, I, we have no money. We have no staff, right? We have like one person named Sally who's doing 10 different things and she's a rock star. And if she ever got hit by a bus, we'd be screwed, right? Like that's more representative of the reality that many of you are living in. So uh, I spend a lot of time talking with folks about, okay, what is low-hanging fruit here? Like what is a... Uh, affordable but really impactful solution to your particular challenge. And I completely uh, believe this, that when it comes to marketing strategy, when it comes to the implementation of marketing tactics, copywriting isn't used enough, right? Folks don't know how to write great copy. Writing great copy is different than writing a great blog post. It's different than writing a you know, beautiful PR piece, writing copy, really, really good copy should compel a particular action, right? It should, it should all but like, uh, motivate you to quickly give your email, right? Quickly give over some information about yourselves in exchange for something of value. And what I love about copywriting is it is an even playing field, right? Like you don't need to have the nicest CMS, the most, you know, dynamic UX experience on your website. If you have, if you write really, really, really good compelling copy, you know, you can have an ugly landing page, right? And you can still get wonderful conversion on that page from an inquiry standpoint, right? So I think that, you know, one of the things that the big takeaway here is if you've got if you don't have a lot of time if you don't have a lot of money go invest in learning how to write good copy right there's a ton of really really valuable resourceful content out there i can link to some of it or if you guys are interested in like learning some of the uh, or getting access to some of the courses that i've been a part of or taken please just you know dm me on linkedin because i believe that again this is a very underutilized tactic and i think that more if I was like the director of marketing communications at a college or university, or if I was a VP of enrollment marketing, what I would do is I would mandate that all of my team, anyone that's going to be communi- communicating with a student, right, that they go through some sort of copywriting course um, because I just think it's that impactful. Um, okay, hopefully that was helpful or interesting. Number three, imitate first differentiate second. So the problem for most brands, right, in higher ed, in my perspective, uh, in my opinion, is that they strive for differentiation way too soon. So, you know, a brand's unique value propositions, right, that is its lifeline. That That is your lifeline. It is your equity. But for most schools, right, in my experience, the journey to differentiation should start with imitation. Because Oftentimes, folks just aren't doing like the basics, right? Like they, they either haven't been trained or they don't have the resources or, you know, whatever it might be. They're not even like doing the, you know, things that we know to be true about like what it takes to write good marketing copy or what it takes to put together a solid marketing campaign, right? Or student recruitment campaign or a digital first, right? Uh, a virtual event campaign, right? There are, there are just tried and true tactics that have been tested that work really, really, really well from a positioning standpoint, from a branding standpoint, et cetera, that a lot of schools just aren't even doing. So I would argue that before you spend right time and energy trying to just like, you know, differentiate, first start imitating. Make sure that you're doing the things, right, that actually are work, right, that have been proven to work. And then once you're doing that, right, then I think you can get to, okay, cool. We got the basics down, right? We're on we're on even playing field now. Now how do we differentiate? Now how do we stand out? 
right? And if this is hard to do within higher ed, which oftentimes it is, then look outside of the industry. I, I would argue that the same basic frameworks that a SaaS marketer uses to convince a CTO to buy a $30,000 piece of enterprise software, those same frameworks can be used by enrollment marketers to convince a high school student to buy a $30,000 education. Even if the actual mechanics are different, the frameworks are the same. So, you know, study the use, uh, study the copy that these folks use, uh, dissect their email conflows, make detailed notes of the creative writing that they use as part of their paid social campaigns using Facebook ads library. Have a look at the keywords they are organically winning on in, you know, SEM rush. And now that you know, sort of like, okay, this is what our competitors are doing well. This is how they're like actually succeeding. Then it's time to think outside the box, right? Too often, folks don't take the time to identify what is in the box, right? Like, what is the norm, right? What is standard? Okay, cool. Once we define that, once we're at least doing standard, great. Now it's time to box that in and, and do something outside the box, right? And that's where differentiation comes in. Number four, measure twice, cut once. So I've talked about this uh, over you know the past couple podcasts, actually, in, in some way, shape, or form. But my grandfather was an engineer, and he had this small woodshed in his backyard where you could find him on you know most evenings tinkering with the latest stool or frame or you know bunk bed even that he was building. And myself and my cousins, we loved, you know, working in Grandpa's shed. Uh, you know, he was kind enough even to help us uh, build a couple of dog houses and bird feeders over the years. And I, I remember that anytime we were building something with Grandpa, what he always said is he'd say, Zach, remember, make sure that you measure again before you cut. Measure twice, cut once when it came to any sort of, um, uh, you know, cutting of, of wood. <laughs> and while my grandfather did not clearly uh, pass along his woodworking gene to me, this idea of taking a second look or even just another hour to think before doing has, has really stuck with me. So when it comes to marketing, you know, intentionality is everything. Measurability is an expectation. And it's really just like not a luxury as it can be in brand advertising. So it's important to remember, right? Like, why are you doing what you're doing? How will you measure success? What will you learn from this experiment that you want to run, right? What insight will you garner from this campaign that can be applied to future campaigns? And what I really love about this principle is that the ratio from planning to execution is two to one, right? Measure twice, cut once. It's not three to one or five to one or 10 to one. Planning is remarkably important, but too often I think that a great idea can be killed before it has a fighting chance to fight because, right, we get stuck up in planning and never get into implementation mode, right? So especially in an environment like ours that is constantly changed, that is constantly changing, you have to plan, you have to be intentional, guys, but like at the same time, you really need to make sure, right, that that ratio is like, okay, we, we're planning, we're, we're doubling, you know, we're, we're, we're measuring twice, but then we're cutting, right? So don't wait until you've measured three, four, five times and then cut because then cutting it, right, it might be too late, right? The wood might have gone bad, right? There might be some other sort of like material in the marketplace that it is better to use for building a house than wood, right? You get the gist. All right, number five, the future of brand is casual. So I believe that really the advent of direct-to-consumer products have inspired this monumental shift in how brands position themselves. So in years past, right, the retailer was the middleman. They were the ones responsible for, you know, creating a delightful customer experience. So when you, when you walked into a Macy's, right, when you walked into, you know, a, uh, a Nordstrom, whatever it might be, right, 
it's it's really like Nordstrom's job. It's really Macy's job to make sure that you have a delightful customer experience so that you buy the products that are available. And the brands, right, that are present in Macy's, that are present in Nordstrom, right, they're just they're just selling product, right? Like they 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 don't they're not too worried about the actual experience because they don't have control over it, right? Like Macy's the retailer. But then, right, the Dollar Shave Clubs of the world, the Allbirds of the world, and, you know, the Warby Parkers of the world, they have kind of come in and they've set this new precedent for brand messaging that I think feels way more relatable and less aspirational. So these DTC, DT, ugh, I can't speak, DTC, right, these direct-to-consumer products, um, what they have really done is they have now become responsible for the customer experience, right? Because there, there is no retailer. There is no middleman, right? It, these things show up at your door. So the way that things are packaged, right? The the UX experience on the website, right? The uh, When you open the box, right? That that smell, the, the, the way that the product is laid out, all of that is the experience now. So all of a sudden, the brands, right, are actually responsible for for um, for crafting this really cool, unique experience. So what I think uh, these brands have done really, really well is they've pivoted from you know the traditional, here's why you should buy these glasses, to who wouldn't want to try on five plus unique pairs of glasses from the comfort of their own home approach, right? Like that's like the Warby Parker approach. And you know, I, I think that like next generations of students, like they're really skeptical of what I'll just call like frou-frou messaging and, and gaudy positioning, right? They'll take a what's up, Zach, over dear Zachary any day. And I think that colleges and universities looking to differentiate themselves need to look no further than their lead gen pages and ask themselves, or, you know, maybe you know better yet, ask their favorite 17-year-old, would this page compel you to give up your email address or your phone number? Right? I think that that is, that is the question. And basically what I think is happening here is, Brands are 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 focused less on like being this like living in this like ivory tower, like this luxury good. And it's now about like being really accessible. It's being like really conversational. It's being it, 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 in a sense, right? What's happening is we've sort of like democratized luxury so that it's more accessible to everyone. And what we've done is we've said, look, our expectation of brands is that they should communicate with us, right? They should be as accessible to us as if it was a friend, right? Like you can text these companies, right? And a real human, believe it or not, is on the other side and they'll respond, right? It's this really remarkable sort of shift in how we perceive and interact with brands. And I think that that future is going to continue. So that's number five. Number six, this is a really short and sweet one. Uh, how-to content still really freaking work. So in terms of like, uh, you know, titling content, right? If you want content to perform well, if you want it to stand out, how-to content, right, in the title still is nine times out of 10 gonna gonna be your best option for, um, from a headline standpoint. 60% of Enrollify's top 25 podcasts of all time start with how-to, right? And we, I, I like, to, I take a lot of pride in our titles and I, my team hates me sometimes because I will change a title and I'll forget to like change the URL and it will cause all this, all this issue, uh, right, as we're about to publish, Um but I, so I care a lot about headlines and, uh, you know, I try to like be different and whatever. And, uh, the reality is if you want to know what the data says is like freaking how to content is the way to go, right? 60% of the time, like it's going to perform better than anything else that you're going to do. 60% of our, uh, 25, you know, top podcasts all include how to in the title. All right. Number seven, marketing attribution is still subjective and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So, 
Understanding a prospective student's journey from Google ad click to enrolled student has actually never been easier. So there are an incredible number of tools and technologies available today, such as like HubSpot and Element 451 to help enrollment marketers better understand the digital footprint of their school's inquiries, applicants, and, and students. And yet schools still really struggle. Like the number one question I get after sort of like, hey, can you help me, you know, can you help me with SEO? Like, what do you think about SEO? Blah, 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 SEO, right? The second uh, most common question is around like, hey, how do I like set up better systems to accurately sort of um, attribute marketing interactions and actions with, you know, butts and seats. Schools really struggle to develop systems that assign appropriate credit to each action that a student takes on their path to enrollment. And, you know, I think that we've come a long way, right? Marketing attribution is incredibly important and, and schools really understand that there needs to be more investment in time and energy and money in these in these resources and these areas than ever before. But I think what's important to note is that there's no like one standard or playbook that everyone must follow. So rather, I, I think what schools are are doing, like schools that are really doing attribution well right now, multi-attribution well, what they've done is they've just assigned a particular value to each action that a prospective student takes. So like, for example, five points for a Google ad click, 10 points for a visit from organic search, 15 points for an email click, 25 points for a phone call, et cetera. And I think that like this type of like you know, lead scoring. And it, on the front end, this is sort of lead scoring. I'm talking about like uh, on the back end, when you go back to attribute sort of like, okay, how do we assign where this, where Zach came from? Like wh who gets credit for Zach coming to our institution? I think that like reactively, you need to sort of like break this apart in the same way that you would proactively do if you were just trying to qualify Zach as a lead. And so it, it's less important that you have one system and it's like, okay, well, you know, if any everyone who comes to our, our events, right, we know that 50% of them will start applications and 25% of the people that come on campus will end up enrolling. Therefore, our campus visit days get all that credit. And, you know, that, that might be true. Like campus visit days might need to, you know, get a lion's share of, of the credit. But it's by no means the only thing that should get credit, right, unless it's the only thing the prospect actually did on their journey to enrollment. It's like if they just showed up one day to campus visit day, right, they came to campus and then they, you know, applied and enrolled, like, fine, campus visit day gets the credit. But 90% of the time, they've done other things like that. You might not know what they've done. You might not have the systems and processes in place to sort of like effectively track that, but they're researching, they're reading content, right? They're watching videos on your site. What sort of value do we assign to that? So this is a long way of saying that like, it is important, it is incredibly important, more important than than ever before to make sure that you've got marketing attribution systems in place, but it is okay that it is, it is still subjective. It is okay that there is not like a one size fits all approach to sort of, uh, you know, crediting particular actions um, with a particular set of values. So uh, this is not, you know, objective. It's not, you know, marketing gets credit for inquiries and admissions gets credit for enrolled student situation, but rather it's an approach that helps enrollment marketers understand the recipe that yields the greatest ROI, right? That's what we're after, right? What is the right, what are the right ingredients that need to be present in our enrollment marketing uh, recipe so that like we freaking have this delicious, awesome, like, you know, meal that is uh, nourishing for all, right? Like that's, that's the goal. All right, number eight, 
80% of your content can be good if 20% of your content is great. So good, consistent content is more important than great, inconsistent content. And, you know, some folks will argue with me on this, but I think that most brands that, you know, poo-poo content marketing do so because they struggle more cons- more with consistency than they do with quality of content. So one impeccably well-written 2,500-word, you know, blog article is just not going to boost your SEO as quickly as five pretty good 500-word articles will. Um, so be, and beyond the SEO play here, when you publish inconsistently, you're banking on the quality of the piece being a slam dunk. You're banking on it getting shared, right? All over social media and generating like noteworthy feedback. And in my experience, this is a gamble that nine times out of 10, it's just not worth taking. Now, again, you still need great share worthy attention holding content, but as long as a piece that really challenges your audience to think differently or inspires them to, you know, try something new shows up 20% of the time in your content marketing mix, right? I think that you're good. You're, you're in good shape. And, and I think it's also worth noting that like good is still good, right? Good is not poor content. This is not to say that you can get away with writing crappy content. It's just that not every single one of your pieces need to be like Pulitzer worthy. All right, number nine, insert yourself into the conversation. So conversational marketing is this really, really, really hot trend in marketing today because, you know, it. I think it best emulates the way that consumers, all of us, actually make purchasing decisions. And, you know, the framework as made famous by Drift and contextualized for higher ed by our friends at Mongoose is is simple here, right? Engage, understand, and recommend. And in higher ed, I think we're really good at the engage and recommend steps, but not so much as at, you know, the understand step. So prospective students buy the promise of an experience and a specific outcome from higher ed, right? Like that is the value proposition. That is what, you know, folks are buying. And in an effort to be like uber personalized in our communications, I think that we've actually lost one of the most important aspects of personalization. And, you know, the other, you know, one in in one-on-one communication, not the enrollment manager. So what I mean by that, right, is that marketers and professionals should splice their unique experiences, insight, and their, you know, quote-unquote unique why into conversations with prospects. Not only does it produce a more authentic sales experience, but it will more quickly unearth any points of friction or concern that might otherwise go noticed. So in in essence, right, like insert yourself into the conversation. I feel like this is true in podcasting. This is true in any sort of marketing, right? If it is truly a conversation, right, if the goal is like you're trying to develop a relationship with your prospective students, a relationship with your applicants, then share a little bit about yourself, right? Talk about like, hey, here's what I love most about this experience right this school hey here's what's been hardest for me about the culture of this place right all of that like if, if we genuinely want an authentic recruitment experience you've got to insert yourself into the conversation the person that is owning the prospect student prospective students relationship right at any point in time in their journey to enrollment that person that there's a there's some onus that they play in making sure right that they are sharing and listening in an authentic way because at the end of the day right people buy from people right? People buy experiences. And yes, you know, is your admissions counselor solely responsible for the quote unquote sale to the prospective student? No, like there are other factors, like of course, but like that's their main point of contact, right? Like that's, they, 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 they might, you know, be okay with the product. They might be interested in the product, but if the admissions counselor can kind of come in as a salesperson and like really help sell the product, right? That can be, you know, a game changer, Uh, for where the student actually decides to go to school. All right, and last but certainly not least, 
Hired marketers are more progressive than you think. Now, every enrollment manager I have ever met has said something along the lines of, if we can just get them to campus, we can get them to apply. And then, of course, COVID threw this like huge, massive wrench in this idea when you know 95% of schools shut down in-person recruitment events for the better part of a year and forced schools to have you know this, this really like come-to-Jesus conversation about their digital experiences. And yet, I was like really amazed to hear stories of how schools successfully pivoted. Marketing and admissions worked together very quickly to sign up with new systems, to get on virtual event you know, platforms like Unibuddy or Platform Q's uh, Conduit. Schools looked to Goodkind and DD Studio to tell stories via video, right? And really help compel students to take action in a way that uh, you know they, they hadn't previously invested lots of time and energy in. I think questions, w- w- this was so cool to watch too from my perspective. And again, folks DM'd me on LinkedIn. They sent me emails. They also, I also just saw a lot of this going around on social media. And these questions like shifted from should we advertise on YouTube to, okay, what YouTube advertising strategy makes the most sense for our school? Folks got super, super creative. And like teams got really, really, really scrappy. And I would argue that they advanced an industry right, our industry in higher ed that is stereotyped as complacent, bureaucratic, and resistant to change. I think that COVID advanced us by five to 10 years. And of all of my learnings, I think that this might be the most important one. And, you know, that is not to underestimate the value proposition of higher ed, right? Even though higher ed as a value prop might need some spring cleaning, right? Don't underestimate the value of higher ed, nor the enrollment marketers behind it. You see, Hired marketers and admissions professionals are more often than not eager to believe in an idea, an approach, or a strategy that might be working outside of the industry and find a way to make it work for student recruitment. The friction, right, the real friction is often tied up in resources or in buy-in from leadership. But in the last 18 months, I've seen silos between admissions and marketing and student success broken down. I've seen presidents ask heads of marketing what they can do to better support their initiatives. I've seen a genuine willingness to test out new campaign ideas or new suites of marketing automation tools. And my hope, right, is that as we move into, knock on wood, right, this post-pandemic world, this posture doesn't change. So that's my hope. Um, for the future of what you know, 2022 and 2023 will look like in higher ed marketing. Like, I, I really hope that we continue to hold on to this notion of like, we have to innovate, right? We have to innovate or, or, or we'll die. But I think that this poses like, again, just a really exciting like moment, right? An exciting moment to think differently, to think radically, to just embrace right new approaches of 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 you know things that we've never done before, and I think that the schools, the enrollment marketers that are able to successfully do this, they're the ones that are going to win, right? They're the ones that we're going to be looking to as as sources of inspiration over the next few years. So, folks, there you have it: ten marketing lessons learned after one hundred podcast interviews with some of the best minds in higher ed. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know what you think. Uh, comment, share. Um, Again, follow us on on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a quick review if you wouldn't mind. It would really, 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 really help me. Take a screenshot of it. Send it to Zach at Enrollify.org, and I'll send you a little little thank you gift. Um, All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. As always, enjoy the rest of your week. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, Or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. 
We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there.